Hello, my friends. Today we're talking to Jonathan, the co-founder and CEO of Demagi. And we discuss how Demagi built out tech for contact tracing and data processing during the pandemic. How Demagi has augmented their engineering teams by working with Cactus Group over the years and tips for approaching each new task with curiosity. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So um, I got in basically since I was born. Both my parents are engineers. Um, one worked for AT&T and one worked for IBM. And I uh, was always just around computers, technology. My dad's basement is filled with ham radio equipment. Um, you know, so we have like massive ham radio towers in our yard when I was growing up and endless uh, rows of uh, radios down in the basement. And that was something that I always was drawn to it. And then when we got our first PC, um, you know, I was, I was hooked. I just was on it all day. Pre-internet, I was doing a lot of programming, um, learning uh, basic and, and those types of things. I actually, uh, two of my friends were also very into technology um, back when we were in grade school. And we'd pass notebooks back and forth, like programming on paper. And then just like <laughs> read the code and figure out what the algorithm did and then write code back. And we, that was our version of passing notes. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was always kind of a huge nerd. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So how did your career get started uh, in tech? Were you always following that as a career path or did you do anything else? Yeah, I mean, I thought I might want to be pre-med, pre-law or finance, um, but I always kept getting drawn right back into tech. Um, so when I went to college, I did it here in the United States at MIT and freshman year took um, uh, my first uh, college level computer science course and was totally hooked. Um, you know, I was programming all night, doing extra effort on these problem sets um, and really just loved uh, the ability to code something and then hit compile and it's like right there in front of you and it's a working product. Uh, that you can touch and feel. And, and that was something that I was always really, really drawn to. Um, but I did uh, take a, a slight detour in college over to the finance world. So I interned at Goldman Sachs on the mortgage desk and was really also interested in the world of finance. But my heart was always in technology and building stuff. And so I, I quickly realized that wasn't for me. And um, senior year, I tried to get a, a startup off, off the ground um, in social networking. Uh, and LinkedIn and Facebook um, obviously took care of that problem for us back in 2001. Um, so then I, I landed on Demogi, which is my current company that I've been running for the last 20 years. But that path through technology has always kind of been what was calling me and, and what I wanted to do. That's awesome, man. So I know you founded a couple companies and uh, this might be a little bit of a, a tougher question, but early on, um, what was like an assumption you you made when starting one of your, your companies that you found out was just way wrong? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong a lot. Um, I'm trying to think of the, the most wrong uh, <laughs> assumption that I had. I think, you know, I, I, I'm 20 years into Demagi. And I still forget this lesson, which is, you know, if people were trying to make the most impact per dollar they spent, the market would be functioning correctly. You wouldn't need a Demagi who is um, so unique in the market, but they're not. And they never said they were in the first place. You know, the U.S. government has political motives. The Gates Foundation has Bill and Melinda deciding what they want to do with their money. Um, there's a lot of different people who are trying to create impact, but it's their own version of impact. It's not my version of impact. And then on top of that, you have the government, the host government that we're working with and the community healthcare worker, and everybody's got these different motivations. 
And even 20 years later, I find myself just being like, man, if, if we could just do this X, Y, and Z thing, it'd be this huge impact. Why wouldn't anybody fund this? And you're like, look, you, you know that's not how the market works. And you can't just wish that everybody agreed with you. And so one of the things that I, um, I've been wrong at in all my companies, I've learned a ton and, and been fortunate to sit on many great boards um, that's also taught me this, is like when you look at the system dynamics that you're operating in, even if it looks like a totally normal functioning for-profit market, there's always weird stuff going on that that is is altering how the system functions. And as a starter of companies and somebody who participates in these markets and systems, you really got to understand the system you're operating in and what positive and negative effects it's going to have on your organization. And you can't wish that the system was going to be different. You got to play the game as it is today. And you can try to change it and advocate for a better system tomorrow. But you know, if people aren't paying for health and education outcomes together, don't yell and kick and scream and hope that they do. Go figure out a different business model to sell the health or education. But if they don't want to pay for both, they're not going to. And that lesson of those companies early on was something that um, I still learn every day. But it's really kind of understanding if you're going into something, you're like, oh, this, this appears broken. I'm just going to convince people to fix it. It's like that's that's typically not how that argument goes because somebody else probably tried to make that same argument before you. You know, so what is the secret thing you know that nobody else does, or what is the novel innovation you're bringing to the table? And it shouldn't be you're just more convincing than the previous person because that's often not a good theory of change for <laughs> a startup. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you're a co-founder at Demagi, right? Yep, exactly. So my um, my my there. Three other co-founders, um, Vikram Kumar, who is still with us um, and is our chief medical officer, and then two others who have since left, um, Tarjay and Vish. Um, Vish is now the CTO at Mayo Clinic, so very successful, and Tarjay is an executive in biotech. So the other three co-founders are all um, immensely successful and, and really, really amazing technologists too. But yeah, Vikram and I um, for, for quite some time, and I helped co-found it and, and get it off the ground. So where did the name come from? Um, so Damag means brain in Hindi. Um, two of the four co-founders were Hindi. And um, Damagi kind of means uh, somebody who can uh, be a smart fixer. And then I, I also learned it might uh, also be a wise guy or smart aleck, um, which kind of fits <laughs> with our Damagi personality a little bit as well. Nice. So, so what does the company actually do? So we are a social enterprise that builds a platform that allows you what now would be called a low-code application platform. So it allows you to build your own applications and provide these to your users. Our uh, most canonical use case is in the healthcare sector. So you'd be using our platform called ComCare, build a mobile application, give that to a frontline worker. She's in rural Africa, um, going household to household, registering pregnant women, helping them take better care of their child during the pregnancy and after birth. And our application is a system them the whole time they're doing this. So it's kind of like if you were imagining your doctor's office, it's a lightweight, good version of that medical record system in a phone. And the key is that it works offline. So our technology and our company's ethos has always been to design for low resource settings. We've um, always tried to build our software in a way that was um, able to be used by the most accessibility requirements um, and reach the most number of people. And that's really uh, the main focus of our, our firm. I know that like, identity in healthcare is a really tricky area. Like it's hard as a patient to even have access to my own records. What what kind of problems have you guys run into in that space to be able to like store records locally with a patient on them? Yeah, that's an incredibly complicated 
challenge that um, has led to a lot of uh, technology sophistication that we've had to build out around synchronizing records. So the identity in low resource settings, often you may not have like a national unique identifier. So a driver's license or social security number here in the US is very commonly used and increasingly your mobile phone number. None of those may be available um, in a low resource setting. And so you're getting things like a health ID. So it's kind of like a um, what we call a functional ID. It's specific to the use case. And then the software and the technology is able to recall that ID, but it's not able to identify you across different domains um, that, that may be more common here in the United States. But that portability of the record is something that we spent a lot of time engineering. So the ability for your device um, to synchronize with my device and move just the part of the record that we each need is something that allows us to provide very sophisticated care on kind of low-end technology. So it's not like you can design for like the latest iOS model or the latest smartphone, but you're typically two or three years, um, you know, on older technology. And so you need to make sure the power requirements you have, the battery requirements you have all allow for um, supporting this workforce that may not have uh, readily access to the internet, but also not ready access to uh, charging or power station. I'm, I'm just having trouble as being surrounded by the internet at all times, everywhere, kind of thinking about how you would make records accessible without the internet. Like, how would that work? I'm yeah. trying to wrap my head around Yeah, it. no, it's a good question. It's very difficult. Um, so unfortunately, we've had to um, spend a lot of time on the engineering challenge of this. So basically the record for you, let's say I'm your frontline worker. So I registered you, I'm coming back to provide you support. My device knows that Adam's John's patient. And so I have Adam's record, but maybe I'm talking to um, you and all the other households in our village. So I have 100 households in our village on my device that's available offline so I can do all the, the processes I need to to support you. But the other 100,000 people or 100 million people in our country or community or district, they're not on my device. So we have to do a lot of work to understand for John to do his job. He needs Adam's record. What other records does he need? And put only those records on the phone. So that you're both making sure you have strong data security, but also can meet the performance requirements you need. So it's quite a complex problem in terms of understanding how a worker um, interacts with a given community and, and village that that has been a big technology investment for us. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. And that makes sense why it's so challenging too. I, I want to talk a little bit about Cactus Group because we were originally introduced because recently, like not not super recently, actually. Time really flies, but we had Cactus Group on the podcast a little bit ago, and um, they were really interesting company with how they. I, I really liked how they put like social responsibility at the forefront of what they do with their custom software development. And I was curious, what's what's your relationship with them like? Yeah, so Cactus Group is an amazing firm um, based on North Carolina, and I've actually known the founder, Tobias, for over 10 years. Um, so we oh, nice. originally connected, we were both um, on a project together working with UNICEF. So we were building a messaging system in Zambia in Sub-Saharan Africa that allowed people to text in and out of a system to get information or submit data. Um, so you would just use an old Nokia phone and, and send an SMS message in and we could move that data through the system. And that's how we originally connected. And they were like Demagi, a very socially driven firm, um, trying to build technology to make a difference. And we hit it off right away. And so over the years, we've worked with Cactus in a variety of different um, engagements where they've provided their amazing engineering capacity to supplement ours. Um, and you know the fact that they're so good at building custom solutions and client management um, was immensely helpful to us over the years and particularly with COVID. This, what kind of what kind of tools were you building in conjunction with Cactus Group to help out with COVID? 
Yeah. So we, um, as I mentioned, our ethos has been in global health, you know, really designing technology for low resource settings. With COVID, um, we actually pivoted and, and moved into the U.S. market as well. So the Center for Disease Control had called us up um, back in March 2020. This was when we had only had the outbreak here in the U.S. in Boston, Santa Clara and Seattle. Um, but it was pretty clear this was going to be a worldwide problem. And we'd worked with them globally, but we hadn't worked together here in the US. And somebody who knew about us said, hey, do you think your software might be relevant here in the United States? And we're kind of like, don't we have systems for this here? And like, no, this is going to be very bad um, from an IT standpoint. Um, do you want to see if you might be a good solution for contact tracing? And we learned more about the use case and we'd done contact tracing with Ebola in West Africa. So we, we knew that the, con the platform was a good fit, but we didn't quite know the health IT landscape here in the US quite as well. Um, but we got that call Friday night. Um, I talked to them Saturday. We had somebody on site Sunday. And so we were working with the public health department on California and built the solution overnight, deployed it the next day. Wow. Um, and we're just iterating. We started out contact tracing on Monday. By Tuesday, they were like, we can't keep up. We're not doing contact tracing anymore. Can you help us with case investigation? Um, so contact tracing is like, I'm a close contact with you. I need to let you know you might have been exposed. Case investigation is you're positive. I need to talk to you and, and help you quarantine and, and see if you need any other services. Okay. We moved into case investigation on Tuesday. Case counts were skyrocketing. By Wednesday, they gave up on that. And we had to do um, nursing home support. So we kept rebuilding the technology in the application. You can imagine with that kind of flux in the application you're building, connecting to other data systems is a huge challenge. And so in the United States, you need to get positive lab results into our platform as fast as possible. And there's a lot of archaic legacy technology. There's a lot of challenging integration problems. And so as we looked at, can we really make an impact here? We we're like, if we don't get the data into our platform, Comcare, very quickly, it won't matter how good we are at case finding or case investigation because it'll be too late. You know, if you have a positive lab result, but you don't talk to them for 72 hours, that's three more days they've been spreading COVID without right. knowing it. So um, we were like, well, we think the platform's a really good fit, but if we can't get data in and out fast, we're going to be stuck. And that's when I called Tobias and I said, hey, um, you know, we're thinking about trying to really support here in the U.S. and we're going to have this huge integration challenge. Um, do you guys have capacity um, to kind of jump in and, and look at whether this um, is something you would do with us? And he was immediately like, absolutely. You know, let's see if we can do this together. And so our first project was with the city of Philadelphia. Um, they had decided to go with Comcare and then we needed to connect to their lab system so that when you got a positive lab result in Philadelphia, it would come into our system. And Cactus worked with them to connect their lab system to Comcare and did an amazing job. And it's, um, you know, been fully operational uh, as soon as they built it and it's still running today. Wow. So how widely did that end up rolling out? So we worked together in Philadelphia. We worked together um, in Colorado as well. And um, now have a couple of the projects that we're looking at, but those two states in particular, um, we have operated in four different statewide um, projects and, and two other local geographies, and they've helped us in two of those six. That's really cool. Yeah, you hear about all the different solutions that had to get rolled out to respond to the pandemic. And it's it's kind of hard to keep track of all the different people and companies that were pieces of the puzzle that helped us like get through it. So it's really cool like hearing your your story and and how how you guys were able to help in those specific use cases. Um, that's yeah, awesome, was, man. And it was crazy because we um even after we found that it was a good fit, we're like, come on, there's got to be other products here in the US. Right. And so we're looking at Salesforce and Microsoft Dynamics and these other like huge, huge behemoth players. And so when we talked to the public health departments, um, because we had done so much work for 
low resource settings, making sure the user interface was really, really solid for low literate users or non-tech savvy users. All these things that we never intended to be you know, features that would necessarily be highly differentiated here in the United States. When you start to onboard a ton of contact tracers, like thousands of contact tracers who might be not the most tech savvy users or might not be comfortable using um, certain types of sophisticated software. Actually, we beat out Salesforce and Microsoft head to head with certain customers, um, which we were you know, really excited about. Um, I'm sure there's use cases where they're way better than our platform, but to, to do that and to win on usability was a really exciting um, you know, moment for us. Yeah, that's incredible. So what what kind of things do you have to do to make your software more usable for low literacy and low tech savviness? Yeah, I mean, you, you, we, um, we originally got down this track because we had tried to deploy, I want to say this was back in 2011 in Afghanistan. So we went to Afghanistan, um, built an application on our, our ComCare platform that was from internal and child health. And then we went to go train the users. And a lot of the users were not um, fully literate. And so we're like, oh, what do we do? And then the client um, recommended, well, what if we do kind of audio and image-based user interfaces? So rather than have it be all text, let's can we do it pictures and can we use audio to kind of nudge you along the user interface? I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. And funnily, this was for um, a literacy uh, approach that, that the user experience features were built for. We forgot to turn them off when we were demoing to somebody else in another setting. And they were like, oh, I want that too, but not because my users are illiterate. I just think that that's going to be a better application. And what happened was using um, embedded video, embedded audio, when you're interacting, turned out to be a stronger way to do what in my field is called behavior change communication. So if your doctor is trying to convince you, Adam, to exercise, I'm like, hey, you should really exercise. You may or may not find that very compelling. Where if they have like a really good three-minute video of Michael Jordan telling you to exercise, <laughs> you might take it a little more seriously, right? So the idea that there's multiple ways to persuade people and the human, the human contact might be one, but some other people may be more susceptible to a video or some other people may like to see an image or audio. Um, was really an area that we've invested a lot in the platform. And so we call that um, part of service delivery. You know, so it's in the interaction that I'm I'm trying to support you, as opposed to how a lot of people think about technology in the public health sector of just collecting data. You know, so how do I get my data back so I can create an epidemiological model or surveillance system? And we also think it's critically important to empower the users. You know, how can we make that user's job better? And that led to a lot of the features we built that, um, you know, make it a, a... very powerful technology for the settings that we're supporting. Yeah, that's something I've, that's kind of like a common line I've been hearing a lot recently about empowering the users, like in, in the cybersecurity space, you can build like the most secure platform possible that hackers can't get in. But if you're not educating and empowering your users to practice proper like cybersecurity hygiene, then it's still not going to be secure. That's that's like something that um, we recently interviewed the CTO of Avast, yeah. And uh, he was he was really big on on that. And they're they're moving more into like education for the users there, and that that's really cool. And so I wanted to ask because in your example you said uh, like if Michael Jordan told me to exercise, like I'd be like yeah yeah I want to exercise. Um, <laughs> but so did you guys like? reach out to like influential people in the areas that you were operating in to like help convey these messages to the users? 
some some of our clients have. So we typically would, you know, we're we're B2B. So we would sell to you and you would be trying to create that content. And so you would go reach out gotcha. to Michael Jordan yeah. to do it. Um, but yeah, some people have gone to local celebrities. Um, and it doesn't necessarily need to be celebrities. You know, a huge part of these community-based services are built on local trust. So it might be a local religious leader or a local um, political leader. And it might not be somebody from, you know, the urban center who's the flashy athlete or the flashy um, musician who's the best carrier of that message. In fact, the um, the dubbing of audio for videos is actually really complicated because you have to like proactively think about, do you want that accent to sound like it's urban or rural? And depending on the culture you're in, a rural person might want it to sound like a sophisticated urban person or might want it to sound like a rural person. And there's all of the science of fascinating things just on how you dub videos you know, to be most most persuasive in different cultures and climates. And so exactly to your point of thinking about the human factors, like that is such a critical element of making technology successful in the markets we work in. Um, but increasingly, we've realized it's a, it's a huge part of making technology successful everywhere. You know, you can have the best security software as you just talked about. And if your users are still writing their password down on their computer, when they lose that computer, you know, they're, they're um, going to be stuck. And so that, that, combination of technology and human factors and making sure people actually want to use the technology you're building and you're solving a problem that both they feel and the organization they're part of is really something that we get excited about and, and is uh, something we spend a lot of time thinking about. So when you're going into new markets and like areas of the world that you're not super familiar with, how do you interface with, like, how do you go about hiring locals there that can help guide you through the the processes of like just speaking with prospective clients in those areas and, and adhering to all the different cultural nuances that you might not be familiar with? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's something that we um, spend a lot of time doing um, local capacity building and local partnerships. So we are always going and working in a new market or new culture in partnership with um, somebody who's actually running the program that we're equipping. And so we're very fortunate that kind of by design and by default, our approach is always to go in with a partner um, who knows a lot more about the local context and local culture than we do. And we then are try to be very humble and um, do what we call design under the mango tree, uh, which is really listening to the users and, and trying to build an application that they really like. And that terminology came up from some of our early work in Tanzania, where we were literally you know, interviewing frontline workers, getting their feedback, and then going over to the tree, coding redeploying it and showing it to them. And it wasn't just great for us to, to really learn how to create a product, but it was super empowering for them. You know, they said, hey, can we do this? And then overnight we'd go change it. And they're like, whoa, you actually listened to me and, and changed the software to, to do what I asked. And so it was a it was a win-win for both our users who were getting a better product, but also um, for empowering our users and making sure they felt heard and that, that we were there to serve them and make sure they had a powerful application. Yeah, that's really cool. Because, um, yeah, you you definitely can't go into these new markets without local support. You hear about so many, I mean, some, I've been kind of disappointed recently hearing about like, th there's been a lot of pub around charities that aren't actually getting a high percentage of their donations to the end user. And, and a lot of that's because they don't have those local partnerships, boots on the ground that, that are helping them where it's actually needed. They try to do it all themselves. So that uh, it's really cool that, that that there's so much effort put in on your side to do that. Yeah, and I think that it, it 
it, as I mentioned, it's both a goal, but it's also a necessity. Like if we didn't yeah. do that, we wouldn't be building good technology. The users wouldn't like it. And to your point, you know, there's there's ways to do this that are crazy high overhead. You fly people in, you do it all with like high cost salaries, or you can do a much smarter thing, which is like use local talent, which is probably better than your stuff anyways, knows more what they're doing. You're building local capacity. And it's even self-serving for us because we're building out our network. We're building out the ecosystem of people who know Comcare. You know, so it's win-win. Um, and I think that's just a way better way to go about deploying technology for social impact. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I really like about Cactus Group is how they're super involved with the open source community. Are, are you guys also? Uh, yeah, so our, our, absolutely. Yeah, our entire platform is open source. Um, and so this is something that we're really proud of. Um, in our field, it's called global goods, so digital public goods. Um, but we're one of the biggest. Um, an independent kind of code analysis uh, tool found Comcare to be one of the 53 most uh, best repositories on GitHub on an analysis they did back in 2019, which was pretty cool. I don't know how accurate the code analysis was, but it's something we're really proud of. You know, we have um, been open source our entire history at Demagi, and we've worked with Cactus really closely on a platform, that messaging platform I mentioned. We were working together with UNICEF. Um, that's still in use today, so it's been 10 years, and that, that open source code base is still there. But yeah, we're huge believers in open source. And a great example is, you know, while Cactus was doing those integration projects with us, they said, hey, it'd be um, a little bit easier if you could do X, Y, and Z with the data model. And we were like, oh, could you build that? And they're like, sure. So we contracted with them to build, you know, core components of Comcare that they just pushed into the code repository. Um, so it not only enables you to um, build great software, but it allows you to build partnerships in ways that don't work very well proprietary software. So there's a huge business benefit to the open source side as well. That's awesome. Have you found uh, like any recruits through the open source community, like an engineer that was just working on it on their own? You're like, hey, you're doing really good stuff. You want to work here? Yeah, I, 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 uh, not not directly because they're working on Comcare, but certainly a huge number of the recruits we have have open source um, code in their GitHub profile. Like a ton of engineers these days are submitting their resumes with GitHub links to all the work they've done. It's a great way to see you know, how big of an open source community member they are. Um, the fact that we're open source, I know, draws a lot of engineers in. Um, we're hiring. Um, so if anybody listening to your podcast is looking for an open source job, feel free to come apply to Demagi. But we uh, we do a lot of um, brand building around our open source efforts. And it's certainly a great uh, recruiting tactic for engineers. But um, our, our software is really a sophisticated enterprise class B2B platform. So it's not the natural type of... Um, open source project that's going to draw a lot of random uh, software engineers into the project itself. But a lot of the libraries we've spun out have been pretty popular and, and have been ways for people to come in. Yeah. So you, you mentioned it's like not super common in an advanced B2B enterprise platform. Because like when I think open source, I, I always think about like a community of users working on it and improving it. But um, with being B2B, how do you guys balance like the open source with also keeping it able to monetize? Like where where are your core competencies that you guys are absolutely like needed? Someone can't just take your repository and run it. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So people, some people do just take their repository and run it. Often the most common reason for that is due to data sovereignty. So it'll be a national government um, in a, a market that we're serving. They're like, we love your product. We love working with you. We don't want to pay for your SaaS offering. We'd rather just host it on our own. And then we have the ability to support them to do it. Um, one of the things that we're increasingly trying to 
make a more compelling argument. We're working with our hosting provider, AWS, on this as well, um, is to really do a better job articulating. You can host it on your own, but to kind of replicate what Demagi brings to the table, you have to do all these things. It's not just about like, you know, turning a server on and running the code, but how are you going to secure it? How are you going to scale it? How are you going to keep it performant? And these are things that are kind of like the same argument Amazon, Microsoft, and Google were trying to make to governments 10 years ago. We're now trying to make to our, our customers um, today. And um, it's a in terms of what we think we bring that's that's hard to replace, it's really um, we have a team of you know engineers on DevOps and code development production that are hosting multiple environments and multiple geos. We're SOC 2 compliant, we have all our security infrastructure. All of that's just really expensive to replicate. It's not that you can't run Comcare on your own from a code-based standpoint, but to run it on your own at that level of security, sophistication, and performance, that's the part that's really hard to replicate. And that's, um, you know, so we have a full SaaS offering as well, which the majority of our customers leverage and use um, in our environments. That makes sense. So it's like the, the complexity of managing it all because it's like such a large platform is really difficult. And instead of hiring someone internally or multiple people internally to do that, they can work with you and that that oftentimes is easier. Yeah, and the analogy I give, um, you know, Pfizer has the new COVID drug coming out um, that that's really effective and um, they're making the IP available. Well, like- No way. Knowing, yeah, oh, I, so I didn't that, hear so, about that. Yeah, so that IP is available in like lower resource um, markets, but uh, how are you going to manufacture it? So like you have the blueprint for the drug, but the hard part is coming up with like a clean manufacturing environment, you know, in that right. case. And similar to software, so much of software is becoming open source and like the, you know, the movement for open source is exploding and, and basically all of crypto code is open source um, in this next wave of like Web3 technologies. So there's increasingly tons of code, but you got to manifest that code, uh, you know, in a high scalability service. And that's becoming the more difficult um, skill set in some ways for some of these projects is not the code, but it's the running of the code, you know, the manifestation of that code as a, as a product that is usable to the end user. Yeah, that's that's one thing that's been really interesting about that running this podcast and and learning from all these different tech leaders is like the so many there's so many tools out there to help just manage and implement the complexity of of these various tools that are out there for running a business like AWS and and cloud is so complex that um like we we've had I can think of like three different companies off the top of my head that just like help you manage your cloud strategy um, because that that's not your company's like core business is doing that. They, you want to focus on providing like your the Comcare platform. You don't want to focus on how do I manage the cloud. Um, but yeah, sorry that that's just something that's that's been on my mind. <laughs> well, and I mean, it, and it's exactly right. And I think the pre AWS, so we had a partnership with a database vendor um, that was based on CouchDB. Um, so we were using that, and there was this great company in Boston called CloudAnt that got acquired by IBM. And I remember they were one of our first big tech investments. You know, so we were running Couch on our own, and then like we can't keep doing this. We're having all these scalability and performance issues. And there was this other really interesting hidden benefit that I hadn't anticipated. So we were paying them a lot of money. It was our biggest IT bill at the time. But because we were doing that, we were like, okay, we're not Couch DB experts. They are. We're never going to think about this again. So also the problem is when you have all these different technologies and and cloud and and these things, you're constantly like, oh, should that be the thing I do today? 
is go figure out how to optimize that problem. And you see this huge number of companies coming up that are super specialized, but it's great because you can pay that company to be what they're great at. And not only are they better at it than you, but you also just like remove it from your list of things to prioritize, right? You're like, okay, that company handles this. I'm just going to wait for their product roadmap to do whatever it does and I'm going to use it. And then I'm not going to think about this anymore. And that's a huge benefit now today's environment. This is something we um, spend a lot of time on also internally is just getting that stuff off your plate. You know, I'm not going to think about this. I'm not going to think about that. And that alone just gives you this focus and ability to really let your engineering team be great at the thing you want to be good at and not worry about the stuff that you're not trying to be differentiated in. Yeah. Well, speaking of like focusing your efforts, I'm curious, how do you guys choose which projects to get involved with? That um, uh, <laughs> this is a complex um answer I could give uh, that that we spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, we have three priorities at the company, impact, team, profit, in that order. And that's roughly how we think about projects. So what is the you know current impact that we expect today? And what's like the potential leveraged impact tomorrow? Um, how good of a fit is it for our team? How much are we going to enjoy working with this client or government or um, use case? And then obviously, can we afford to, to do the project based on um, the amount of resources available? And there's no like clear criteria of like, okay, it's got you know 100 units of impact and 50 units of team and, and 10 units of profit. But um, <laughs> it's something that we, we look at a lot. Um, we are pretty risk-seeking in terms of being humble about what's going to end up making the most impact. So we still have a lot to learn. We've been at this for 20 years and we keep learning new stuff, new ways of, of doing our job, but more importantly, new ways of how community-based services could create outcomes. Um, you know, one of the interesting things in the U.S. market, healthcare has a huge impact on educational outcomes because for a lot of children, they're out of school because of health issues. And it may not be their own health issues, but a sibling's issues or a parent's issues. So health and education intersect in this way you wouldn't necessarily expect if you're an education or a health person um, underneath the hood. And you can imagine, oh, wait, if that's true and engaging with a family as a whole family for healthcare is going to also improve education, what does that mean about how we could fund these projects? And what does that mean about the ROI of providing more community-based services for certain families? So these economic models, these financial models are something that I'm fascinated by and that we also love to take on projects that are pushing the envelope on what um, these economic drivers could look like for creating social impact. Because I think one of the embarrassing failures of technology for social impact is these are such high ROI um, returns for society. But they're not necessarily a specific ROI for one department in the government or one private sector player. And technology could be such an amazing um, way to bridge that gap because you can carve out the impact that's created for the educational system, the impact that's created for the health system, get each of them to pay 50% of the project and, and, and do it. But it's, it's pretty complicated. And you've got to have a firm like Demagi who's really driven by the social outcome um, to, to be able to put some of those deals together. So that's really exciting for us. The other, um, you know, you mentioned Cactus earlier, is looking at it, we're all often not the whole piece of the puzzle. You know, some projects we are like really a big part of the main part of the project, but almost always it's going to take a consortium of technologists, a consortium of people who know what to do with that technology. And so we also look at the quality and skill of the other players that will be around those projects and try to select for the ones that are really, you know, look like they have a successful team. And that's why when we got to work with Cactus on COVID and when we work with them elsewhere, um, having amazing partners like that is really something that um, also uh, brings us to the table because life's too short, you know, to work with people that you don't want to. Um, I, yeah. I, heard, I heard a phrase that was like, if you don't work with somebody for 10 years, don't work with them for a day. 
um, you know, just like really pick long-term partners. Uh, and it's something that I, I think is, is really good advice. Um, you know, whatever your cup of tea is, people have all sorts of preferences of who they, who and how they want to work, but finding those people is, um, great. Cause like, that's, you know, that's your career, that's your job. You got to like the people you're working with. So you started that by saying you have like a really complex answer to that. Does that mean you, you guys have teams internally that are working on these crazy complex calculations to prove the ROI of, of these like community-based tech investments? We, do, we, we have, um, our, our internal research and data team that looks a lot at our impact tries to do different analyses of like, you know, per employee is our impact going up, per dollar coming into Demogi is our impact going up, what's our growth rate and like, do we think we'll sustain this? So there's a lot of internal research we do with our own data, but we partner a lot with academia on looking at the overall value of technology investments. Um, a big group that we work with is the Community Health Impact Coalition. This is a consortium of many different technology organizations and nonprofits who focus on community healthcare workers in low resource settings. And they do a lot of economic analysis. So one of the studies that WHO published back in 2015 um, showed that we have the ability to have a 10 to 1 return for community healthcare workers, um, for investments like OA. Now, obviously that benefits accrued to economic outcomes, health outcomes, a lot of different factors, um, but there's a huge amount of research that we partner on and we're um, really excited to, to continue to push that part of the field forward as well. Have you ever heard of a company called M-Pulse Mobile, like the letter M-Pulse Mobile? I've heard of them, but I'm not too familiar with the work, but yeah, I've come across their name before. Yeah, we interviewed them on the podcast like, over a year ago now, I think, but they, they do like natural language understanding and uh, like a conversational AI specifically for healthcare to help reach out via text message, like as you have experience with as well, um, to people specifically in lower income communities to help get them to go to the doctor and realize their options to help improve uh, the disparity and like the health impacts of like social situations. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, you look at, you look at things like that, that are, you know, they don't sound that difficult to do. And then it turns yeah. out they're very complex social engineering problems of like how you reach the target audience you're trying to reach. But the analogy I've been giving more recently, um, and I don't know how uh, much you access the healthcare system here in the US, but we spent 20 billion plus dollars, right? Doing all this digital work over the last 10 years in health IT. I still can't pull up my phone, book an appointment with my doctor, on like any reasonably pleasant user experience, right? And I'm like, the, there's so many things you could do to make healthcare more accessible to people who have busy jobs or might be working two jobs. Or, um, you know, it's a, a lot of this is like, it's not necessarily health seeking behavior. It's like the system is incredibly annoying to interact with. The user experience <laughs> of our healthcare system is terrible. And so there's all these nudges you can provide, but there's also just amazing ways for technology to potentially create a better user experience, not the classic user experience definition of like the software user interface, but the user experience of that human interacting with the system. And technology is just one component of that, but it's such, an, such a ripe opportunity, in my opinion, for um, disruptive innovation and something that the United States Digital Service does a lot of and, and looking at these different areas. But absolutely, I think like those types of technologies, like you mentioned with Impulse, um, could go so far because the, the user experience in some of these areas is so bad. The interface between a citizenry and the public services the government's trying to provide. Yeah. And I, you're circling back to like how so much impact can be found in, in areas where you don't necessarily like when you're talking about uh, health and education impacting each other in the way they do thinking about how just the UI of an app for 
a healthcare provider directly impacts the health of the community that they serve because it makes people more or less likely to seek healthcare. That's crazy. Yeah. But uh, okay. So before we get into like wrapping up, I want to talk to you a little bit about leadership because that's, that's something that we like talking about on the podcast. Is that cool? Absolutely. Cool. So uh, actually recently we got to interview uh, Zscaler's CTO and that was, I, I thought a super cool episode because going in, I knew that they were a huge security company and big on zero trust and stuff, but I had no idea. They actually have like 150 data centers strategically placed globally that like help to process data in a way that decreases the the to and from time instead of like sending your data across the country, just goes like a couple cities over to their center. Um, and they, in doing that, they've like really smartly thought about security from the ground up. But at, anyway, uh, <laughs> their CTO Amit was also just an excellent leader. And he was talking about how he's a big believer in the power of marginal improvements. Like if you improve at something by 1% a day, that becomes a absolutely huge amount of progress over the course of a year. So that's been on my mind. And I'm curious, how do you carve out time for self-improvement in your schedule? And, and what do you what do you do for that? So I, I'm very fortunate to have an amazing chief of staff, Jillian. And she and I talk a lot about how to make sure the schedule I have is balanced in terms of like internal one-on-one -on -one meetings, external meetings, working with my direct teams and indirect teams. And so I try to really um, make sure I have a healthy diet of like a balance of meetings. Most of my, most of my calendar is pre-programmed every week. Um, but I do a lot of reading and that's where I find like I have the most amount of time to self-reflect at night when I'm reading a book right now. I'm reading John Doerr's Speed and Scale um, about climate change and some of the work Kleiner Perkins has been doing. And when you're reading about these different areas that you may not be totally immersed in every day, it often brings you back to your own company or your own industry. So you're reading a book or a science fiction book or something else that has like nothing to do with your sector, but it starts connecting the dots in your head. And then you can take that and say, okay, what did I take from that? And how do I want to improve how the company's operating or my own skills? For me personally, um, you know, I've been um, at the helm of Demongi for 20 years. Um, I've seen it go through multiple iterations, but I've been, you know, basically the leader of a tech company my entire career. And so with that comes a lot of blind spots on what it's like to join an organization, um, you know, what it was like to join us when we were 10 people or what it's like now when we're 250 or, you know, how we interact. And so I also try to do as good of a job as I can being humble and curious. And I, I don't know that I'd be accused of being too successful at that on Sundays. Um, <laughs> But curiosity, I think, is one of the best ways to do self-improvement. You know, a lot, everybody has meetings they don't want to be in or conversations they don't want to have. But coming in with that sense of curiosity to say, you know, maybe I'm annoyed I have this meeting or maybe I don't like this topic or maybe I'm kind of like frustrated that um, my team member didn't do X, Y, and Z. But you can always be curious about why are we in this situation? Why am I frustrated with you? Why did you not do the thing I thought was obvious that you should have done? And I don't always successfully bring that that curious mindset into meetings. But when I do, you know, I had a, a leadership coach um, a couple of years back and she was like, you know, before every meeting, spend 60 seconds, think about like what you want this meeting to do. What do you want to get out of it? How do you want the meeting to play out? Like run through the conversation you're about to have in your head. And it was such an eye-opening way to, to do self-improvement of kind of going into those meetings, being much more self-aware of like, how do I expect this meeting to go? How did it go? Um, and so I think that's something that doesn't require a huge amount of time. I mean, a lot of leaders are, are quite busy, but for self-improvement for me, it's really trying to figure out how you want to show up and 
what you can do to do that. And when you're constrained for time, a lot of that can be thoughtfulness and how you're, you know, going into mediums. As I said, a lot of my my time is spent in mediums. And so that's the the unit of work that I think of when I when I think about how to do self-improvement. But I'd say curiosity is like such a big factor of being able to improve yourself. Yeah, being intentional about uh just setting goals for meetings, like you're saying, is actually something that I've been thinking about recently too, because I found myself kind of falling into a dip where I'd be showing up to a meeting and figuring out on the fly why we're even here, who am I even talking to? Um, and it was it was just like a loss of productivity that I wasn't okay with. So like you said, just uh, taking that time before each meeting, I started setting little rem- like a reminder five minutes before each meeting that just like automatically goes off on my calendar um, to like stop what that that's when you have to stop what you're doing. You, you're not allowed to just work until the start of the meeting anymore. Um, and take that I, for me, it, it's five minutes, um, to like set up in my brain, my mental model of how it's going to go, who I'm talking to, so I can come in more educated on the situation and, and get more out of it. But, yeah. And, and I come from an engineering background. A lot of the people um, that we recruited early on at our company were coming from engineering backgrounds. So it's very easy to kind of be like just schedule and routine, show up with the meeting, what are we doing, interact on it. And I think, you know, given how much time is spent both in meetings, but also just how much, how much of work is now team-based, you know, collective progress, um, getting good and better at that is something that I think is well worth your time or anybody's time to kind of like constantly be trying to improve, like, how can I run a better meeting? How can I make sure everybody's doing the most out of this meeting? How can I make sure different personality types can um, be successful in meetings with me? You know, I'm a really big extrovert, so I don't mind talking. Well, that can be um, really counterproductive if I want to hear somebody's voice who's very introverted and may not just volunteer that. And so also how you manage multiple personality types to be um, contributing during meetings or getting successful closure on topics. That's a skill that I'm constantly trying to get better at. And I, I definitely would not say I, I excel at it, but it's something that I, I want to get better at. Yeah. Something I've heard that was like so simple, but kind of blew my mind <laughs> was just kind of getting rid of the sense of urgency to come to a conclusion at the by the end of a meeting and that it's okay to just ask the question in the meeting and give everyone time to start thinking about it and come to the answer in a few hours or tomorrow and that's like especially good for in situations where you have a mix of introverts and extroverts um because yeah like everyone's going to have good ideas but some people are just going to speak first or louder or both um <laughs> yeah and, yeah yeah well and as you said i think that that's a really good point and and great advice for your listeners because i think the if the meeting's easy to come to a conclusion in, like you probably didn't need to have the meeting in the first place write down the answer send it around get feedback and then you're done most of the meetings we do are really um, what what in the leadership um curriculum is called adaptive problems so you're you're even struggling to define what the problem itself is once you define the problem, the solution often comes easier and might be a better written document so people can review it on their own time and, and provide input. So a lot of the means that I have are more um, exactly your point. The point is not to conclude the meeting with a solution. It's really to better define the problem. You know, what, what is going on here? Why does this? Why do these two teams not feel like they're clicking? Or why is your go-to-market not working? But if it's a very clear known problem, often we don't need to have a meeting about the solution. Somebody writes up the solution and we're like, is this it? Yes or no? And, and critique it on paper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I want to ask you a little bit about um, 
because you've, you said you've been with the company for 20 years, you've grown it to 250 people now, which like, wow, the con congrats. That's crazy. And to my brain, our company is like six people right now. Anyway, what was some of the, like the biggest challenges you ran up against in scaling and what did you learn from those? Oh man, that's a great question. I think I was constantly surprised at when we outgrew processes and it kind of like snuck up on us, you know, as we grew or when we put something in place that worked really well in a surprising way. So when we were at about 25, I formalized the management team and it was a leader of five or six people and we would meet weekly and that, that worked amazingly well. And so from 25 to 50, we were just humming along. And then we get to 50 and we're like, huh, everything just like doesn't quite feel right anymore. What's, what's going on? It's like, <laughs> you know, our structure just kind of was outgrown. We had started to go into new geographies. Uh, we needed a new management team structure. And then we did some iteration and kind of figured that out and went from 50 to 100. And then we got to 100 and we're like, huh, stuff doesn't feel right again. And so we kept, you know, it'd feel great. And then we'd keep growing and then it'd feel like it, it didn't work anymore. And we went through a really big reorg going into 2020, moving from a mostly functional um, approach to much more business unit oriented approach. Um, and we were incredibly fortunate to have done that transition because if COVID had hit, we would not have been able to kind of take 40 people uh, out of the existing divisions and put them on COVID without kind of collapsing under our own complexity. And so we had gotten really fortunate that we had done that reorg just in time um, to be able to be prepared to uh, move um, a bunch of people into what was effectively a new division overnight and be able to support such a massive public health response, both here in the US and globally across so many different use cases. And so that that it's the org structure. Um, and they, they always talk about how leaders aren't necessarily the person who takes a company from zero to 10 or 10 to 50 or 50 to 100 isn't the person to keep carrying you forward. Um, but that's also very true of the org structure. I didn't appreciate how, um, immensely important the org structure was going to be towards how you could scale, where you could grow, and then when you would outgrow that org structure. And that's been one of the really surprising things as we've kept growing. But one of the things that I'm, I'm super proud of has been our culture has been pretty solid and improving this whole time, in my opinion. Um, obviously, we, we had a different culture when we were 10 people, but the core elements of it as we've grown and being open and candid and socially driven and really wanting to work with amazing people, that's been such a big draw. And I, we would not be anywhere, you know, at Demagi without having built such an amazing team that, that really is all pulling together for each other and for our users. And so that was probably the most critical success factor of success as we scaled was we knew who we are and we knew what we wanted to do together. And having that purpose together made it easy to overcome some of the challenges as you like outgrow your organizational structure and realize you screwed something up or need to change something. Having that energy to do it um, is really dependent on having an aligned team that's all trying to get to the same place. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like your culture is simultaneously like a competitive advantage and also a like self-perpetuating cycle. Because I mean, something I, I've been hearing a lot about is how with like so much of the engineering jobs being remote today, wages have somewhat flattened across like dev jobs and whatnot. And the differentiating factor in terms of hiring has become like your mission and uh, the culture at the company. And you guys being impact focused, I mean, it sounds like you're going to win a lot of the time on that front. And by that token, uh, be attracting people that are likely to help keep your culture strong. So, I mean, 
just looking at it from from that how i how i see your company from how you described it today um it makes sense that your culture is like grown so well with with the scaling yeah it's exactly as you said you know it, it's a it, it's got a nice self-perpetuating culture i think some cultures are really hard to keep intact and ours is actually really easy to keep intact because it attracts a certain type of person who's mission driven who's really talented who work who wants a team-based approach and so you don't get people who are super egocentric or not into impact like they just wouldn't take the job um, and it'd be really obvious during the interview process to both parties that it wasn't a fit um, and so that's we're really fortunate for that um, which isn't to say you don't have to work at it and improve it and we're doing all sorts of work to to do that right now but um, it's something that that has been a, a huge differentiator. And as, as you said, it's also a great um, recruiting tool because it is so competitive now to hire engineers in all markets. Um, you know, we have offices in India and Cape Town and those those markets are going crazy. Um, the US market's crazy. So it's, it's really, really hard to hire um, and our West Africa uh, team as well. And having this impact approach is a key differentiator for us and allows us, it's not for everybody. You know, it's not what every engineer wants to do, but for those who do want to do it, we're um, usually a great mutual fit. Before we wrap up, is there anything that we want to make sure we get out to the world that we didn't get to touch on today or any extra shout out you want to make? Um, yeah, I'd love to, to, you know, for the listeners, I know you have a lot of technologists and engineers. The, the shout out that I'll give is saying um, working in fields that have public sector engagement or public services or interacting with these like really big bureaucratic problems. It's, it can be super frustrating, but it is so rewarding because if you crack it, the impact you can have is huge. So I do just really encourage everyone, um, you know, to, to think about the contribution they can make in those different sectors, because technology is changing at such a crazy rate. The gap between what people who understand technology can do and what people who don't is unfortunately growing. And I think technologists themselves can play a role trying to fix that and, and contribute more to closing that gap. And so I just encourage every, everybody who's listening to, to really think about that and how they might want to spend not all of their career per se, but a portion of their career or side time thinking about how to use technology to really improve public good and, and social impact. And it's something that I've, I've found huge purpose and, and love, um, you know, in my life. And it's something that is definitely worth trying out, even if it ends up not being uh, fully for you. And uh, yeah, just leave that with your, your listeners. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.